Well, here we are on Easter. It seems kind of weird to me and probably to you too that we're not together. I'm missing my hugs and uh, handshakes and all of that, and I'm sure you are too. But even in the midst of a coronavirus, in the midst of all this physical distancing, we know that the Lord is not at all distant from us. And the reason is because He is not in a tomb. He's been resurrected. So this morning we're in chapter 20, which is very convenient because that is John's description of the resurrection. Many of the Gospel writers, all of them, have something to say about the resurrection. But John is the most loquacious. He's the one that has more to say to us, not only in terms of words, but also in terms of content. So let's read, beginning in verse 1 of chapter 20. Let's read together. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came from the tomb early to the tomb early, while it was still dark, and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid Him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, He saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the Scriptures, that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their own homes. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. And as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid Him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing Him to be the gardener, she said to Him, Sir, if you've carried Him away, tell me where you've laid Him, and I will take Him away. Jesus turned and said to her, Mary. She turned and said to Him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to Me, for I have not yet ascended to my Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that He had said these things to her. Let's pray. Great God, our Heavenly Father, we pray that You might take us deep into this text, that we might understand what John is saying to us, not just about his relationship with you or Mary's relationship or Peter's relationship with you, but our relationship to you. Lord, we thank You that it's Easter. We thank You that the cross is followed by silence and then in the darkness of of Sunday early hours, You manifested Yourself again to those You love. Lord, we pray that You'd manifest Yourself to us today. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. The man was looking at a card rack in a store 
He had been there for a number of minutes. He was trying to find the perfect card and a sales clerk saw him and came over and said, it looks like you could use some help. He said, oh, I sure can. I'm looking for a card that expresses exactly how I feel. I want one that tells of my deepest longings. I want one that describes the passion of my heart, my undying love. Within two minutes, the clerk said, how does this sound? To my one and only love. The young man said, that's perfect. How about giving me four of them? Years ago, a pastor was standing at the back of his sanctuary greeting people as they came in for Easter Sunday morning. Now, this was before social distancing or physical distancing, so he's shaking hands. He reached out his hand to a man he had never met before and said, I'm the pastor of this church. Are you a visitor here? The man was indignant. He said, I'll have you know I'm a member of this church. The pastor said, but I've been here five years and I've never seen you. The guy said, listen, I said I'm a member. I'm not a fanatic. If ever there was a day to be a fanatic, it's Easter. For 38 years, Ken Woodward was the religion editor for Newsweek magazine. And every once in a while, he'd write an article about Easter that was really phenomenal. And this was one of them back in the late 80s. He wrote, by any measure, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the most radical doctrine of the Christian faith. His teaching, His compassion, His death, all find their parallels in other religions. But of no other historic figure has it been claimed persistently that God raised Him from the dead. In fact, it was the appearance of the resurrected Christ that lit the flame of the Christian faith. It was the power of the resurrected Lord that fired the motley band of fearful disciples to proclaim Him throughout the world. Years ago, Billy Graham was in the Soviet Union. He was there for two weeks preaching, and on the last day he said to his translator, his Russian translator, is there any advice you might give me about my preaching? Without any hesitation, the translator said, Dr. Graham, I would suggest that you preach more about the resurrection. You know, it's, why would he say that? I mean, Billy Graham preached the cross with great intensity and great power and great success. Why would he say, preach more about the resurrection? Because he knew the cross does not exhaust the Gospel. The cross explains the Gospel, but it's the resurrection that ratifies it. Back in the early 80s, President Reagan would meet with Suzanne Massey, who was an expert on the Soviet Union. In one of their early meetings, she said to him, you know, sir, you ought to realize that the Russians love Proverbs. In fact, I should teach you some Proverbs that you're able to articulate them to Gorbachev and the other leaders. He said that would be fine. She said, you know, you used to be an actor, so it shouldn't be hard for you to memorize these Proverbs. And so she began teaching him. After the first one, Reagan said, you can quit now. That's the perfect one. That's the only one I need. Dovii non provii. And every time he got together with Gorbachev, he'd repeat that proverb to the point that Gorbachev said, you always repeat that every time we're together. And Reagan laughed and said, I like it. Trust, but verify. You see, the cross is the trust. Everything necessary to ensure the purposes of God for men and women and children all over the universe, all over time, Everything to ensure our salvation was finished at the cross. But the resurrection ratifies it. That's why John spends 
twice as much time on the resurrection as any other gospel writer. In fact, he spends as much time on the resurrection as he does on all of the events surrounding the cross. Because he knows that you can have a gospel. You can have a gospel with a cross. It's necessary. But you can't have a cross and a gospel without an empty tomb. And that's exactly what he shows us here. So let's dig in. First of all, notice the context of the resurrection. The last verse of chapter 19 reads, So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. So it's Friday. Three bodies on the cross are all dead, so they need to take them down before sundown. Joseph of Arimathea comes to Pilate and he asks for the body of Jesus. And because Pilate knows Joseph, and because he's a man of great standing, he gives him the body of Jesus. And then John says, together, Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus prepare Jesus' body for burial. They wrap it in linen cloths. They put in 75 pounds of spices. That was the custom of the day. And when they're finished, they lay His body on a stone slab inside the tomb, and then the Roman soldiers roll a two-ton stone down a deeply descending trough into place that seals the tomb. Did you hear about the friend of Joseph of Arimathea who came to him and sensed? He said to him, Joseph, listen, you spent a fortune on that tomb. It's brand new. You just had it hewn. You bought it for yourself and your family. Now you give it to bury some criminal? Joseph looked him in the eye and said, it's okay. He only needs it for the weekend. And sure enough, that's true. John says, sometime after midnight Sunday morning, Jesus walks out. Second, notice not only the context, notice the courage. Look at verse 1. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark. And she saw that the stone had been rolled away from the tomb. <clears throat> you remember who this woman was? She was a former prostitute. She was one out of whom Jesus cast seven demons. Martin Luther used to talk about her this way, so many devils and so many sins. The Pharisees would point to her as a sign that Jesus was depraved. He hung out with her. He hung out and ate with her and with others just like her. But look what John tells us. In less than two days after a major earthquake, she braves the streets of Jerusalem in the darkest part of night. Streets that were filled with thousands of people who were sleeping there. They thought there, they estimate nearly two million people were in Jerusalem for Passover. And so she goes through those dark streets outside of the city all the way to the garden tomb. And it begs the question, why would she do it? Why would she take that kind of risk? Months earlier, Jesus gave the answer when He said, those who are forgiven little, love little. And those who are forgiven much, love much. You know what amazes me? The older I get and the more Christians I'm around. What amazes me is how many Christians act like Pharisees. Under the guise of a concern for holiness, they say, you know, it's dangerous for us to have that person uh, lead worship or teach a Bible study. Or that person, you know, I know that person very well. I, I know their sin and I don't think it's appropriate for them to proclaim the Gospel until they prove themselves. 
After all, spiritual responsibility has fallen on us. We have to make sure that everyone who proclaims or leads people in worship is pure. And the more we know about their sin, (coughs) the more we act like Pharisees. You know what Jesus would say to that? Have you ever considered Mary? Of all the people I could have chosen to entrust the proof of the Gospel, I chose Mary. The Puritans used to say it this way, Lord, grant me the ability every day to see the depth of my sin so that I may gain a greater and greater gratitude for the depth of Your forgiveness. That's Mary. Look how far her gratitude takes her. All the way through crowded, dirty, people-filled darkness. All the way through the deepest darkness to get to the tomb. Third, notice the curiosity. Look at verse 8. Then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in and he saw and believed. Now John uses three different Greek words for seeing here in four verses. In verse 5 he says that when John himself, when he got to the tomb, he bent down and looked in. And the word he uses for look there or to see is blepo. And it's the common Greek word. It means to take a quick, quick, a quick glance. But then in verse 6, he uses a different word. Theope, which means to study or scrutinize. He says that's what Peter does. He rushes into the tomb and he studies the scene. And you know what he sees? He sees linen cloths lying there exactly in the right place. He sees exactly where Jesus' body was. And right where His body was, the outline of His body, that's where the linen cloths were. And even the face cloth is folded neatly at the head. You know what that means? He's studying it. He's scrutinizing it. And you know what He comes to recognize? He recognizes that Jesus needed no help. He's not like Lazarus who had to be unbound when he came out of the tomb. Jesus simply slipped out of his wrappings. And Peter sees this. But that's not all that's seen here in this text. In verse 8, John joins Peter in the tomb and John says, I saw and I believed. The word is eidos in Greek. It means to understand. It means to comprehend. Think of it. Here in the darkness of the early morning light, John believes. And there's a huge lesson here. And it's a lesson that John teaches us before the cross, but he's teaching it to us again here. And the lesson is this. Spiritual apprehension, the ability to understand things spiritually, is not like learning the multiplication tables. It's not some body of data that has to be memorized and cataloged. That's why it always seems silly to me that after three years in seminary, they give you a degree, Master of Divinity. Divinity can't be mastered. Neither can spiritual truth. For the Christian, growing in Christ means understanding at greater and greater lengths and depths. I have a close friend who's an engineer. He works every day, even though he's in his 80s. But in addition to working as an engineer, he's also a lay preacher. 
He's been teaching the Bible and preaching for over 50 years. And you know what he'll tell you if you talk to him? He will tell you that it's only been in the last few years that he's really come to understand the Gospel. He's seen the Gospel before. He's taught the Gospel before. But now he sees the depth of its grace like he's never seen before. And you know what else he'll tell you? He will tell you that there's things in the Scripture that he thought he saw but now he really sees. And sometimes they're the opposite things of what he thought. Now there are people who hear that and they're threatened. They'll decry it. They'll say it's dangerous because they don't understand. To grow up into Christ means that you're continuing to grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's true of divine reality. Nobody has a corner on revelation. No one has a corner on divine reality. You know, it's said that when Albert Einstein died and they did the autopsy, they found that 30% of his brain capacity was used. Well, if that's true of Albert Einstein when it comes to science, just think how the percentage that you and I have used when it comes to the things of God. Spiritual growth means seeing things you've never seen before. And that's exactly what we see in this text. While many are threatened by the the idea that perhaps I'm seeing things in Scripture in a wrong way, so Lord, enlighten me. John isn't. He knows that one of the greatest gifts the Holy Spirit gives to any of us in Christ is an insatiable curiosity. It's a desire to study more and more and understand more and more of what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. And then fourth, notice the conviction. Look at verse 16. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Did you hear about the monk who was all alone in his cell when he had a revelation of the risen Jesus? Right there in his face was the resurrected Lord looking at him. Suddenly time stood still for the monk. He was enraptured by the sight. And after a couple of seconds of just looking at Jesus' visage, all at once there's a knock on His door and someone cries for help. Immediately he's in a quandary. Should I leave this vision? Or should I stay? Within seconds he decides to leave and help the person in need. And when he returns hours later, he's surprised the Lord is still there. He says to him, Lord, you're still here. And the Lord said, if you had tarried, I would have left. Now look at Mary. John says, while the other men leave the tomb, the disciples of Jesus leave, she stays. And suddenly she sees two angels sitting where Jesus' body had been lain. But unlike Matthew and Luke, John doesn't spend much time on these angels. He puts all of his attention on Jesus. Because he understands that Jesus is about to utter His first words as the resurrected Lord. And look who He addresses. He addresses a woman. A former prostitute. A woman out of whom He's cast seven demons. He doesn't address His first words to Peter or to John or to any other disciple. He addresses them to Mary. And you know what He tells? You know what that tells me? He is as full of grace after the cross as He was before. And the way you can tell it is what He says to her. Woman, why are you weeping? The angels had asked her that too. 
Then he continues, Whom are you seeking? And then he calls her by name. Dale Carnegie once said, A person's name is to them the sweetest, most important sound in any language. Yeah, that's true. I don't know about you, but there have been times when people that I didn't think would know me called my name. I could tell you stories about it. And I could tell you almost the the electrical feeling that you get in your body when somebody knows your name and you didn't think they would possibly give you the time of day. But imagine what it must have felt like to Mary when she heard the resurrected Jesus call her name. Somebody has said when he sees her crying, he calls her woman. When he sees her longings, he calls her Mary. Think of what this means. The same one who knew her and loved her before the cross knows her and loves her after the cross. Nothing has changed in him and everything has changed for her and for you and for me. Fifth, notice the celebration. Look at verse 17. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, For I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I'm ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Now you read a lot of commentaries and you will see that most commentators spend a lot of time on the first part of this verse. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to my Father. What could He mean? And I know there's a lot of uh, speculation on that, but I think the answer's plain. It's exactly what His Father basically said to Peter on the Mount of Transfiguration. Remember if Peter said, Lord, it's good that we're here. How about if we build some booze and just stay here? And the father said, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. In other words, Peter, this is not about you. You're not going to stay here on the mountain. We're not going to hang out here. I've got a job for you to do. I've got a job to do. And that's exactly what he says to Mary. Don't cling to me. We've got work to do. But that's not all that he says in this verse. In fact, what he says in the second half of the verse is far more important than what he says in the first part of the verse. In the second half, he says this. Go tell my brothers. Say to them, I'm ascending to my Father and to your Father. To my God and your God. You know, this is the only time in the Gospels where God is specifically identified as someone's Father other than Jesus. You say, well, Jesus taught us When you pray, say, Our Father in heaven. But this is more dramatic than that. Jesus is saying to Mary, You go tell my brothers that I'm ascending to my Father and their Father. To my God and their God. This is the only time in the Gospel where it's that specific that God is the Father and the God of someone other than Jesus. You know what that means? That means that on the cross, Jesus' words to Nicodemus were fulfilled. Remember what He said in chapter 3? No one can enter the kingdom of God unless he's born again of water and spirit. And on the cross, He does just that. John's the only Gospel writer to recognize it. Do you remember what he says after Jesus dies on the cross? A Roman soldier took a spear and pierced the side of Jesus and out of His side came water and blood, which is a sign of birth. In other words, the resurrection is the proof that you've been born again of the Spirit of God through the finished work of Jesus. Look what Jesus says. Don't cling to Me. Go tell My brothers I'm going to their Father. 
Look who announces this. It's Jesus Himself. Look what He says, go to My brothers. This is the first time Jesus has ever called His disciples brothers. You know what that means? That every born again believer has gone from being a servant to a friend to a brother because of what Jesus did on the cross and the resurrection proves it. You know the best Easter card you could get? It's the one that says, You are my one and only love. And that's the only card Jesus ever sends. It's Easter. Can you think of a better time to think about that? Amen.